You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Uh, So today's reading, guys, is from John chapter 2, verses 1 through to 12. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stones, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. They stayed there for a few days. So you'll see on the welcome card on the website, there's an outline for today's sermon. If you've got a Bible handy, you might want to have that open as well. So you can see that what I'm saying comes from the Bible. Uh, Let's pray as we think about this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this uh, true story from your word. We pray that you would help us to understand what it means, uh, help us to see beyond the the wedding celebration, uh, to see why it is that we should celebrate Jesus. Amen. What would give you joy right now? I expect uh, many of you would answer something to do with COVID going away. Uh, it'd be amazing for the virus just to disappear, wouldn't it? Then we, wouldn't have, uh, then we could return to something a bit more like normal life. You know, no masks, no checking in with QR codes, no rapid antigen tests, no worries about getting sick or having to isolate. But setting COVID aside, I'm sure there are lots of things that you are longing for. Maybe improved health, a new job, a new house, new friends maybe a boyfriend or girlfriend, maybe just a bit of peace and quiet, or maybe a bit more excitement in your life. I have a whole list of things that would bring me joy, and yes, it probably does involve watching some Star Trek and getting some new Lego sets. But I'm sure you've got your own special list as well with your unique special things on it. But what would you say if I told you that Jesus has an even better list prepared for you? Would you believe me if I said that Jesus can give you more joy now than anything else in the world, and his joy is lasting? This afternoon, we're going to see in John chapter 2 that Jesus brings in the new age of joy and abundance, and he proves this by turning a wedding disaster into a day to be remembered. 
And all we have to do to be part of this new age is to believe in Jesus. In fact, John wrote the fourth book of our New Testament to tell us why we should believe in Jesus. Uh, We've heard in recent weeks that John was a follower of Jesus who became one of his apostles. The apostles had the job of being witnesses to all that Jesus said and did. And John decided a great way to do that was to write a book about it, about the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, towards the end of the book, we read about how the risen Jesus appeared to doubting Thomas. Tom, one of the 12 apostles, didn't believe that his teacher had risen from the dead. So Jesus made a special appearance just to prove it to him. And then after that, John writes this little note for his readers. It's verses 30 and 31 of John 20. I'll read it out for us. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's main aim for his readers, for us, is to believe in Jesus. He tries to convince us by describing some of Jesus' signs. These are miraculous signs, and they show that he's more than just a good man or a wise prophet or a powerful worker of wonders. First of all, he's the Messiah or Christ, the long-awaited king who rescues us from the fallen kingdom of this present age and brings us into God's glorious kingdom, which he himself establishes. Secondly, he is the Son of God, who so closely identified with God that he reveals himself to be God. I mean, when we look at verse 31, we might think that the phrase, the Son of God, is just explaining what Messiah means. And that's a distinct possibility. That's what John meant. Uh, In the Old Testament, King David was told that one of his own descendants would be called God's Son. And in Psalm 2, we read that the kings of Israel were adopted by God to be his sons. And so for the Jews, the title Son of God was often a way of referring to the Messiah or the coming king. But as we study John's book, we find that Jesus identifies himself very closely with God. So close, in fact, that a lot of the Jews understood that he was saying he was God. And so he's not just the Son of God, he is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. John wants us to see that Jesus is divine. And this is why Jesus can offer us life in his name. He has the power of God to create and sustain life. He is the Christ who rescues us from all our enemies, but he's also the Son of God who gives us eternal life. John has carefully chosen seven miraculous signs to write about in his book to tell us about who Jesus is and about the nature of the life that he offers to us. It's an abundant life that brings joy, deep joy and satisfaction. And what better way to start our year than to be learning about this life that Jesus offers us. And so whether you're learning about these things for the first time or you're being reminded, them, reminded of them again. It's my prayer that as we journey together through John's book, 
that we'll come to have a deep faith in Jesus that will lead to everlasting life and joy. So, hopefully you're ready now to get stuck into the first miracle in John's book, chapter 2, verses 1 through to 11. In verse 1, we read that there's a wedding happening in Cana, which was a town in the region of Galilee up in the north. In fact, it was probably about an hour's walk from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. That's probably why he got an invite. He's one of the locals. Jesus is there with his mother Mary and some of his newly recruited disciples. We've got Peter, Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel, and we can probably assume that John was there as well. Now, we all know that weddings are a lot of work, aren't they? My brother is getting married this year, and he's got all the usual decisions of venues and food and guests, but he has the added stress of COVID, something that a few of you have actually experienced in the last couple of years when you've gotten married. It kind of throws a lot of things up in the air. Well, in the first century, weddings could have their own stresses. One of them was that the celebrations would often go on for days. The guests would basically camp out in the town and party on. And so it was the job of the groom to make sure there was enough food to eat and drink. But in verse 3, disaster strikes. The wine runs out. This is actually worse than a COVID outbreak. I know it's hard to imagine, but it is worse than a COVID outbreak at your wedding. It would have been a huge embarrassment to the newly married man. It would have damaged his reputation, could have jeopardized his future. And so let's have a close look at verses 6 to 10 to see what happens next. I'm going to read them out. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. Bang. Miracle done. The wedding is saved. The groom is spared embarrassment and his wife is happy. That's probably the most important thing. Hooray for Jesus. And we read this in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is the first miraculous sign of Jesus that John records and it reveals his glorious identity and it led the disciples to begin their journey of believing in him, of trusting in Jesus. But what does it actually reveal to us about Jesus' identity? How does it show that he's the Messiah, the Son of God? Well, first, it's a sign of Jesus' power that of the Creator. Usually wine takes a long time to make, at least good wine does. The grape vines need to be planted and the rain comes for the big fat juicy grapes to grow. 
Then the grapes are harvested and they need to be left to ferment for a while. And the longer they're left, the better the wine. And the master of the banquet said that it was good wine. So it was the equivalent of well-aged wine. Now, God is always creating wine. He's the one who sends the rain to grow grapes, sends the sunshine. He controls the processes by which yeast breaks down the sugars in the grapes for fermentation. It's by God's power that wine is made every day. And so at this wedding in Cana, that power is shown by Jesus himself. But the whole process is sped up. And not only that, Jesus creates something new because Water on its own can't become wine. He creates all of the great products needed to make the wine. Jesus is showing that he has the power of the creator. It's quite an amazing miracle, isn't it? But if that's all we see in this event, then it's not really enough to show us that Jesus is the Christ. It's not enough to show us anything about the life that he offers to those who believe in him. Yeah, sure, he might be an impressive miracle worker, but lots of people did miracles. Lots of men displayed the power of God, but we're not expected to have faith in them. And did you notice that there's no, emph- uh, there's no emphasis on the miraculous nature of this act? Let's have a look again at verse 9. We're told that the jars are full of water, and then we read this. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. Wait, what? When did the water turn into wine? John doesn't actually say. There's no mention of the miracle taking place. John just says, oh, and it had already taken place. Jesus doesn't say any magic words. He doesn't recite a special prayer. There's no kind of puff of smoke over the water, a flash of light or you know, red swirling colour moving throughout the water. No, the servants put the water in, take some out, give it to the master of the banquet and now it's wine. Can you see then that the emphasis is not the miracle itself? That's not the focus. Jesus is. This is a miraculous sign that points to his identity. In Matthew, Mark and Luke, the other Gospels, those authors use different words that focus on the power of Jesus' miracles. But John just calls them signs. So the focus is on the significance, the meaning of Jesus' miracles. What really matters is what they point to, kind of like a road sign. When I'm driving to visit my parents in the country, Get to to Ballarat, just on the other side of Ballarat, there's a sign that says stall, 100 kilometres. And I know that it's about an hour until I'll get to their house. Then as we approach the outskirts of the town, there's another sign that says stall. Now, is that sign the town itself? Of course not. It points to the town. It tells me where the town is. If I was to pull my car over and get out and look at the sign and marvel at how big and shiny it is and look how the way it's designed actually represents some of the kind of Grampians environment, isn't that wonderful? Look at the architecture and design. If I did that, then I'd actually miss out on the very thing that the sign signifies, getting to spend time with my parents. 
In the same way, the miracles that Jesus performs point us to who he is. See, they're powerful deeds, but what they signify is more important. We need to understand the signs so that we can have real faith in Jesus. Otherwise, we just marvel at the signs themselves. So what is the significance of Jesus' miracle at Cana? What does it mean? It's a sign of his glorious identity. He is the Christ who replaces law with grace. Now, let's think about that idea of being glorious. Uh, John introduces that to us in chapter 1, verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We use that word glory to talk about something beautiful. You know, a glorious sunrise or a magnificent mountain range. We use the word glory to talk about fame and honour. You know, when someone wins the Australian Open, they get their moment of glory. When describing God, His glory means His radiance and splendour, His greatness and magnificence, His fame and His honour. Jesus is the Word of God who became flesh to reveal the glory of God to humanity. And how does he reveal that glory in this sign? Well, we have to start with the jars of water. In verse 6, they're described as the kind that the Jews used for ceremonial washing. Now, you won't find a reference to this in the Old Testament, but the Jews were very fixated on washing. It was a big deal. They'd wash before they had meals so that they could purify themselves from any uncleanness. And it's not about dirt, it's about spiritual uncleanness. Maybe they'd interacted with kind of a a non-Jew, a pagan or something like that, or touched something that was unclean. They needed to be spiritually clean so that they wouldn't be separated from God. And so those stone jars at the wedding represent the law of Israel with its burdensome rules and regulations, with its constant reminder that humans are unworthy of the glorious God. Reminders of the the law's demand for sacrifice and obedience before heaven can be assured. That's not to say that God's law is bad, but rather that it couldn't save people. Jesus reveals his glory by turning ceremonial water into celebration wine. Now, he could have done, uh, he, he could have performed this miracle in some other way. He could have done something different to provide wine. Uh, maybe a, an Uber delivery guy could have arrived with a carload of bottles. Maybe their cups could have just magically kept filling up with wine. But Jesus deliberately chose the ceremonial water to show that he is bringing an end to the old age of law and he's ushering in a new age of grace. We know what grace is. It's, it's God's undeserved favour when he shows mercy to us. When we haven't earned it, it's, it's his kindness and generosity. It's about the freedom of forgiveness, the release of burdens of having to try to impress God. Again in chapter 1. John writes this in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
in the coming of Jesus, the law given by Moses is coming to an end and the new age of grace and truth is dawning. And so what does this sign reveal to us about the identity of Jesus? He is the Christ who ushers in the new age and replaces the law with grace. But what is this new age like? Well, I think we see it in the fact that Jesus makes wine. This is a sign of the life that Jesus offers. It's the life lived in the new age of joy and abundance. The law didn't bring the Jews the freedom that they desired because they couldn't keep the law. They kept being punished for their disobedience. They went into exile and they suffered. They longed for a day when this would all just come to an end. And this is why the Old Testament prophets promised a new age of grace where the burden would be lifted, the burden of the law. A new age of mercy that would offer permanent forgiveness, one of joy and abundance. Have a listen to how the prophet Amos described this future age. I'm going to read from chapter 9 of Amos, verses 13 and 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Did you notice the reference to vineyards and to wine? New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. I mean, that's a lot of wine, isn't it? And what did Jesus make at the wedding? A lot of wine. Those Six stone jars were filled up to the brim and John estimated them to be able to hold 20 to 30 gallons each, which, converting that's maybe 80 to 120 litres. So at a minimum, these six jars would have held 480 litres of wine. That's the equivalent of 640 bottles of Australian wine. Or if you're not into wine, uh, that's 384 bottles of Coke. Or if you still can't quite picture that, imagine the average size bath, fill up four of those, four bathfuls of wine. That's a lot of wine, isn't it? Just for one party. See, what Jesus has given is a preview of the new age to come. And if he can make that much wine with minimal effort, he can certainly make the hills flow with wine in the future. But all this talk of law and wine may not be all that interesting to you. After all, I'm guessing that most of us here aren't Jews. Yeah, we weren't born under the law of Moses. But you know what? We still strive and struggle to impress God, don't we? Maybe you think God will be pleased if you work hard at your studies and your jobs so that you can make something of yourself. God will be pleased with that. Maybe you think God will be pleased if you're super religious, you know, do all those Christian things that your pastors or your Bible study leaders teach you about. You think, if I just do all of those things, try to be a good Christian, then God will be pleased with me. Maybe you think God will be really pleased if you try to be a kind person or a humble person or a, an ethical person. 
But the problem is, we can never do enough. There's always more to do. We're never clean enough, pure enough, humble enough, ethical enough to be in God's presence. It never ends. And so we live in fear of failure. But Jesus turns that striving and fear into joy. He doesn't look at the groom's lack of wine and then yell at him for his lack of planning. He doesn't say, what were you thinking? You should have organized more wine. What kind of a fool are you? No, Jesus removes his burden and blesses him with this amazing, massive gift. In the same way, Jesus doesn't look at your failure and yell at you. He doesn't say, you know how to live, how to be a good person. Why do you keep stuffing up? What's wrong with you? No, Jesus removes your burden of having to secure salvation and he blesses you with a massive gift, forgiveness. And that leads to life and joy. Jesus deals with the law so that you can be free to celebrate. He deals with our guilt, our shame, our insecurities. He deals with our fears and our failings. He takes them all away and he gives us something better. You know, one day the whole planet will be a paradise, a paradise for us to live in, filled with joy and abundance. It will be like one huge, never-ending wedding banquet. And so the question is, how do you receive that life of joy? Well, John says that it's by believing in Jesus. If we think back to John chapter 20, when John is describing the purpose of writing his book, these miraculous signs have been recorded so that we might believe in Jesus, that he's the Christ, and that by believing in him, we will have everlasting life in his name. And so belief, faith, is the key to the abundant life. We have to trust in Jesus. Jesus shows us that life is not found in obeying laws. It's not found in ceremonial washings or being religious. It's found in Him. Jesus is the Christ who brings the new age of joy and abundance. You know, the biggest mistake that we could make in reading this passage is to think that the wine is the focus, that the miracle itself is the focus. You know, if the guests had have found out what Jesus could do, they probably would have invited him to their parties. What a great caterer he'd make. What a great friend who can provide endless alcohol. More wine, Jesus, more wine. And I imagine many Aussies would like that too, wouldn't they? They'd hear this story and they'd be like, yes, Jesus, beers, beers, beers. But we need to not look at the gifts. We need to look to the giver. We need to trust Jesus. We need to entrust our lives to him, entrust our salvation, our future, our joy to him. It's like having faith that a bus driver or an airplane pilot will do their job and will get you safely to your destination. You trust them to do that. And so we trust Jesus with our salvation. And we can trust that he has the power to save us and bless us. After all, he has the power of the creator who can turn water into wine. So he's got the power. We also have to trust that he has the authority to save us. Well, he does away with the law. 
and reveals that he's the glorious son of God. You don't have to follow the law to be saved. You come to Jesus to be saved. He has the power, he has the authority, and we can trust that he has the desire to save us. He cared for this couple, provided wine, saved their reputation. He did a lot more than that, didn't he? He came to earth to show that he loved us, but he actually did the greatest act of love by dying on the cross. He paid for our law-breaking to remove our guilt, to remove our shame, to remove all those burdens, all those barriers to God, those barriers to life. He stood in our place and endured God's just punishment so that rather than judgment, we can be shown grace. We can be shown mercy. Jesus died on the cross for you and he rose again three days later for you so that you might live forever with him. There's a man you can trust. Here is a Messiah that you can believe in. Here is a saviour that you can put your faith in. So rather than worrying about what rituals you need to do to make yourself clean, you can be washed clean by Jesus. Rather than striving to be good enough to tick all the boxes, to follow the laws and the rules, to do all the things you think you need to do to impress God, you can just receive his mercy freely, receive grace from Jesus. All you have to do is trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who has begun the new age with his ministry and that he will secure your place in that new age forever. And that, and that will bring you joy today and every day forever. What would give you joy right now? Surely you can't think of anything better than what Jesus offers you. Everlasting life if you come to him and trust in him. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, it's with great joy and thankfulness that we pray to you. What a wonderful passage to read about your amazing deed, your amazing sign at that wedding. But how more amazing it is to know that the wine wasn't the key. The key to this sign is knowing that you are the creator, that you replace law with grace and that you give us everlasting life, joy and abundance if we come to you in faith. And so I pray that you would stir every heart in this room to look to you as the Messiah, the Son of God, who saves us, and all we have to do is trust in you. Amen.